Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. This is the parable of the talents. It says, For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. To everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord God, you are faithful. And you are our master. You are our Lord. And you have entrusted to us the truths you have revealed to us, namely the gospel. And so every one of us is your servant and a steward of what you have given us. And so, Lord, we confess where we may have squandered what you have entrusted to us. And the hope of our hearts would be that we would see what you have entrusted to us multiplied through our lives. And so, God, would you come alongside us in that hope that we would hear you say to us at the end of our time on this earth, well done, good and faithful servant. That at the core of who we are, we desire to please you, 
So God, would you empower us to live out that desire? And God, where that isn't our desire, God, would you supplant whatever desire falls short of your standard to be, Lord God, replaced with the desire that would lead us into a life that displays and leverages the gospel. God, your power to save us from our sin. God, you are faithful. Would you let your faithfulness bleed over into us as your saints, as we are adorned in the blood of Jesus? God, bless our time as we worship you in spirit and in truth and empower us to live lives in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, while ministering in the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul received a report from the church in Corinth that there were deep divisions among them. Paul administered to them for a year and a half of his life and saw that many got saved during that time. As he raised up leaders, uh, the church was planted there in Corinth. But as preachers came in and out of town, the church became divided. Uh, factions formed around those large teaching personalities, so Paul wrote a letter of reproof to the Corinthians. Where they wanted to follow the wisdom of man, Paul esteemed to them the wisdom of God. In the midst of their arrogance, Paul desired for the Corinthians to have humility. Humility that led to spiritual maturity. We read last week where Paul showed them a bigger picture of what God was building in them and through them. He's building up his temple, God's temple. And after helping them to see themselves rightly, Paul then expands on how they can see the apostles rightly, right? These preachers that came in and out of town, how are they to be viewed? Well, hopefully you found 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to study that together. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 21. God's word says this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. 
For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in high honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would convince our hearts, just as we sang, of who you are and what you have called us into. That, God, we would figure out tonight what is the purpose of, for our lives, that we may live in that purpose as you call us into it. God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our minds? Soften them and help us to live in a way that would please you based on what you say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've derived our outline from uh, for tonight's sermon uh, from Don Carson's book, The Cross in Christian Ministry. Uh, it's leadership lessons from 1 Corinthians, but uh, the chapter uh, that he really hones in on with this is chapter 4, uh, where we are tonight. And so I've taken his outline and, and kind of used it uh, so that we can a- apply it to where we are uh, as young adults. Um, but these points that I'm about to deliver to you are really his thoughts Uh, based on this chapter that we're looking at. Um, He breaks this chapter into three thoughts that I think are faithful to the text and very practical for us. And so I want to give to you uh, his three distinctives of Christian leadership. Three distinctives of Christian leadership. 
The first, Christian leadership means being entrusted with the mysteries of God. Christian leadership means being entrusted with the mysteries of God. And we see that in verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us. He's talking about apostles here. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, Corinthians, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Uh, Paul is instructing the church on how to view apostles, but I think we can also argue for ministers, pastors, church leaders. How should they be viewed? Well, we see him say, there's two identities he kind of esteems, aren't there? They are to be servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He uses that word mysteries, namely the gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. But it isn't just the gospel itself. Mysteries also likely entails other truths that God has revealed. A mystery in Paul's letters is something that people in their human weakness could not understand unless God graciously revealed it to them. And obviously, the greatest of these mysteries that have been revealed to us is the gospel. The fact that the Holy Son of God would die on a sinner's cross for your sin and for mine is the greatest mystery to have ever been revealed, right? UFOs spotted? Who killed JFK? Where is D.B. Cooper? None of these mysteries hold a candle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is ours to serve. And his gospel is ours to steward. According to Paul, the measure of success for the steward is that he would be found faithful. Faithful. This is why we read the parable of the talents. Jesus is communicating what the kingdom of heaven is like when he begins teaching a story, a parable. Right? He says the master places his servants in charge of various items of varying value to the ones who, who stewarded their responsibility, responsibility well. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and isn't that what we long to hear at the end of our time on this earth? Isn't that all we're hoping to hear? Our aim is to be found faithful but many squander their gifts and their responsibilities. He calls those servants wicked and slothful, lazy, 
He says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By this, he alludes, of course, to hell, the eternal separation place for those who reject Christ. There are some who seemingly serve the Lord, but in this time that he is away, they have buried what he has entrusted to them. And just like the talent that the servant buried was taken away, what little they have will be taken away. I I say this with every ounce of sobriety and care that I possibly can. If you bury the gospel, Jesus will bury you. If you bury the gospel, Jesus will bury you. We know that we will be judged one day. That's what we talked about last week. That there will come a day where Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. So what are you doing with what's been entrusted to you? You may say, I'm not a Christian leader. This text doesn't apply to me. Hey, I'm bringing it to you. What are you doing with what's been entrusted to you? The greatest mystery that's ever been revealed to you. Are you squandering it? Or are you seeing it multiplied in your relationships? With what purpose do you live? Uh, I, I read a book uh, a couple of years ago. It's uh, Do More Better by Tim Challies. It's one I highly recommend because in it, he challenges the reader to write a personal mission statement. A personal mission statement. For example, why do you live? What is your purpose? And he kind of walks the reader through putting that together. Uh, in fact, I have five copies to give away. If you're the first person to come to me after I'm done preaching and we dismiss, you get a copy of this if you're one of the first five. Um, and that's my gift to you. Because when I walked through that book, I came up with a personal mission statement. To this day, I'm continuing to, to try to live out. Um, my personal mission statement is this. My aim is to leverage everything that I am and everything that I have towards God's kingdom as a faithful servant of Christ and a faithful steward of the gospel. That's what I came up with. And it's really based on three sections of scripture, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's where I get the everything I am and everything I have. And then you see, towards God's kingdom, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then that last part, a faithful servant of Christ and steward of the gospel. Where do you think I got that? Right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I think it's that important that if you aspire to any level of Christian leadership, that that's who you have to be, a servant of Christ, a steward of the gospel. And what does success look like in ministry? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. I found my definition of success from the Bible. And the Bible promises of itself that the word of God stands forever. It's not going anywhere. 
So my standard for success is an eternal standard. It doesn't ebb and flow with modern methods of our day and age. The question I pose to myself as I lay my head on the pillow each night is, have I been faithful to what the Lord has called me to do today? And every one of us can pose that question at the end of a night, at the end of a day. Notice what it's not. It's not, did we fill up the room at YA worship? It's not, did we launch a new life group this semester? It's not, how many people liked us on Facebook? It's not, did people enjoy my sermon illustration? No. No, results-driven ministry will suck the life out of me if I let it. Instead, I want a gospel-centered ministry because the gospel doesn't elicit attractional methods. The gospel elicits faithfulness. And that faithfulness leads to the right kind of spiritual growth. Remember the main motivation for Paul. He wants to be found faithful because he's going to be judged one day. He isn't concerned with being judged by others. He says it is a very small thing to be judged by the Corinthians, uh, any human court, or even himself. God is the one who will judge. I spoke to this briefly last week. Paul admonished those who build God's building, that it be done entirely upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Just what we sang. He does so while conveying the underlying truth. The building will be tested. He says in verse 13 of chapter 3, the day, talking about the day of judgment, will disclose it. He's communicating to us as believers that one day the structure, the makeup of our lives will be exposed, laid bare. And he says later in verse 13, it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He continues to put this before his readers over and over. He says in verse 5 of this passage that Jesus, at the coming of the Lord, he will bring to light the things now hidden hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. He says, Jesus is going to bring things to light. What you do in the dark. He's going to disclose your very heart and all the ulterior motives that drive you to do what you do that are anything other than the glory of God. And so just like I posed last week, are you ready? The Lord is coming. Are you ready for that? Because if you bury the gospel, Jesus will bury you. The second distinctive that Don Carson gives us on Christian leadership is that Christian leadership means living living life in light of the cross. Living life in light of the cross. Uh, Let's start with verses 6 and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. 
For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul presents a harsh reality for the Christians in Corinth. They have been pursuing knowledge, notoriety, reputation, and well-practiced rhetoric so they can be seen and heard and thought well of. But that is not the life that Jesus calls his disciples into. Paul applies the truths of what is expected of the church to himself and one of the other preachers, Apollos, so that they would learn not to go beyond Scripture. He insinuates that they are getting swept away with ideas that are not rooted in the Word of God. It's like these catchy yet empty platitudes that are passed around on social media. I don't know if you saw, but it was recently revealed that in 2019, 19 of Facebook's top 20 pages for American Christians were run by Eastern European troll farms overseas. Doesn't that blow your mind? This comes from an internal documents leak to MIT Technology Review. These groups, based largely in Kosovo and Macedonia, have been particularly successful when it comes to targeting American Christians. Collectively, their Facebook their Christian Facebook pages reach about 75 million users a month, an audience 20 times the size of the next largest Christian Facebook page. The empty wisdom of man led the Corinthians to being puffed up and divisive. What do you see on social media? The only thing they have of substance is the gospel. And the great thing about the gospel is that no one works for it. Not a single one of them worked to earn the gospel because you can't. The only thing you can do with the saving message of who Jesus is and what he's done for you on the cross and through the grave is receive it. So that no one gets to boast. Not a one of us. Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received? And the obvious answer is nothing. So why are they boasting about themselves? And then Paul puts himself in stark contrast from the Corinthians to show them the sort of life that they are called to as Christians. Little Christ, that's that word. Let's read what he says in verses 8 through 13 to the Corinthians. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Notice the irony in his voice. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. 
When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The irony in Paul's speech is very heavy. Uh, The thing he commends about them are not things worthy of commendation. They are facade. They do not resemble the actual Christian life. He describes his life with honesty and with color, doesn't he? The life he describes is what their lives should resemble. It is the life that Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's hard to believe that we went through the Sermon on the Mount last year. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You tell me, which life resembles that more? The life of Paul or the life of the Corinthians? It's just Paul. This is the preview that Jesus gives his disciples for the upside-down kingdom. Right, The path to human flourishing is counterintuitive. It's different than we may think. Many think that their life will become easier when they become a Christian. The reality is that it will become more costly. But with every single sacrifice and surrender, we find a rich truth to be even richer that Jesus is everything. Everything. So that if you lose everything other than Jesus, you still have everything. So it begs the question, what has following Christ cost you? Has it cost you anything? Because if it hasn't, you may not be following Christ. Does your life reflect the death of Jesus on the cross? He poured out his life for you. He held nothing back. He claimed nothing for himself. There's a beautiful song by Andrew Peterson, an excellent Christian musician called Last Words, and it's just the last words of Jesus as he uttered them from the cross. It's beautiful. And uh, it's really cool. Andrew Peterson's actually coming to Bellevue in December um, for a Christmas concert. Um, His song, again, just the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
Today you will be with me in paradise. Behold your son, behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's take those one by one. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus held no grudge. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He gives away a promise. Behold your son, behold your mother. He surrendered his relationships. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured hellacious separation. I thirst. He felt the reality of need. It is finished. He fulfilled his purpose. And to your hands I commit my spirit. He never stopped giving of himself. Christian leadership means living in light of that, of the cross. And finally, the third distinctive that Don Carson gives on Christian leadership is that Christian leadership means encouraging and, if necessary, enforcing the way of the cross among the people of God. Christian leadership means encouraging and, if necessary, enforcing the way of the cross among the people of God. You see that in verses 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Hmm. The Corinthians had many guides, right? These preachers coming out of town. They didn't have many fathers, spiritual fathers, that is. Paul was a spiritual father to them. And in the economy of their spiritual family, he sends to them his spiritual son, Timothy. I don't know if you caught it. Timothy is called faithful. How does Paul know he can trust Timothy with this task? Timothy's faithful. And he's to be an older brother to the Corinthians. Right? Paul invited them to follow his way of life. And eventually Paul plans to come to them and evaluate the church there in Corinth. Are they all talk? Or do they have legitimate power, power of the kingdom of God. Are they faithful or have they buried the gospel 
underneath their pride? Will they be disciplined or gently and kindly counseled? If we as Christians are to be found faithful, we need help. We need leaders who will poke and prod us toward the faithfulness of God. And the tools available to Christian leaders are twofold. Encouragement or warning. Encouragement or warning. Paul begins this section by encouraging the Corinthians. He doesn't wish shame on them. He admonishes them. He corrects them. He says to them, imitate me. In other words, follow me as I follow Christ, as he says elsewhere in Scripture. Have you ever heard the phrase, do as I say, not as I do? I don't know if you ever heard that growing up. Yeah, well, that's not the philosophy of, uh, ministry of philosophy of Paul. No, if, if he is aiming for faithfulness, he can invite others to draft off of that aim towards the, the same aim of faithfulness. But if that doesn't work, there's another tool, the tool of warning. Paul ends this section with a warning saying, I'm coming to you soon. It's, it's like the dad warning the kids in the back seat, don't make me come back there. It's a stern warning from a legitimate authority. Remember, the, the power isn't in Paul. It's in the gospel. Paul is saying that if and when he comes to Corinth, that their mere talk will be shown for what it is by the power of the gospel that Paul bears. By comparison, their words will be shown to be empty and powerless, and in that they will be shamed. So Don Carson ends with this. If the people of God dig their heels in disobedience, there may come a time for Christian leaders to admonish, rebuke, and ultimately to discipline firmly those who take the name of Christ but do not care to follow him. That's, that's Don Carson. Tough words, but helpful points from this chapter from Don Carson. Where does that leave us? What does that mean for you? Well, I want to give you our main point tonight. Every Christian has a personal ministry, and his or her measure of success is faithfulness. Every Christian has a personal ministry and his or her measure of success is faithfulness. Well, let's start with that first part. Every Christian has a personal ministry. You may say, I'm not a leader of the church. And I would say, yet. But if you're entrusted to something and you do well with that something, doesn't it say in the text, he's going to give you more? I'm not saying that you have to aspire for Christian leadership, but don't be surprised if it comes to you. Are you doing well with what's been entrusted to you? You have a personal ministry. Every Christian who's born again by the Spirit has received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something has been entrusted to you. So what are you doing with it? What are the various aspects of your personal ministry? How's your family life? Do you have any lost family members? 
Would you like to see them to come to know the Lord before the day of judgment? Where is the gospel in relation to your family? What about your friends? Maybe you have some friends that are not living for the Lord. They may call themselves a Christian even. But just as we saw, they may not be following Christ. Are you taking the hard stance to help them live in a manner worthy of the gospel instead of bringing disrepute upon the name of Christ? That's a hard stance. But it's worth taking that stand, both for the soul of your friend and the name of Christ. What about in your workplace? Do people see you striving for something of this world right alongside them? Or do they see you living in this otherworldly contentment that is rooted in the gospel? That you need, nor do you want for anything. Because you have everything you need in Jesus Christ. So while they're running amok with everything that's going wrong in this world and trying to work in the midst of it, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is upon you. And you leverage that by giving them the mystery and revealing it to them just as it was revealed to you. What are the different aspects of your personal ministry? I could go on and on. But only you know what's the Holy Spirit communicating to you in this moment of where you can leverage the gospel for everything that it's worth. And what is your measure of success? Find comfort that it's not in your results. It's not in your performance. It's in your faithfulness. It's in your faithfulness. It's not about whether or not somebody did receive the gospel, right? Did you share? That's faithfulness. And that's what the Lord's looking for. And even when you fall short, you lean into the gospel. You lean into the grace of God as you confess, Lord, I didn't give it my all today. I wasn't faithful to what you called me to. I didn't share the gospel in that moment. And you know what? He welcomes those confessions. And he uses them. In his economy, nothing is wasted. And when you lead out in that, when, even when you just blow it in front of somebody who's not a Christian, when you go to them and say, hey, I didn't live the way I was supposed to. I didn't live the way that Christ would have me to live. That is you modeling repentance. And you know what that leads to? More repentance. Both from you and that person, maybe. So I say that to, as your pastor to poke and prod you towards faithfulness, but I also, the same gospel that I'm supplying you with is the same gospel I need for where I fall short. We're in this together. What are we going to do with what's been entrusted to us? Success equals faithfulness, not results, not performance. I want to leave you with this quote by J.C. Ryle. 
that I hope you'll take and you'll meditate on. He says, let your Christianity be so unmistakable and your walk so straightforward that all who see you may have no doubt whose you are and whom you serve. One more time. Let your Christianity be so unmistakable and your walk so straightforward that all who see you may have no doubt whose you are and whom you serve.